You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now, Gordon Wilson has saved me from the ire of the Courtney's by reminding me that Mexico is attached to that top part. Um, and uh, that reminds me I should never stray outside of the maps at the back of my Bible when it comes to geographical things. Now we're going to read in First Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1, and you'll find that if you're using a church Bible on page 1217 or thereabouts since there are several different church Bibles at the back, but it will be roughly there. We're going to read the first two verses this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. If you're new to St. Peter's, you will not realize that our evening series of sermons always begin on a Sunday morning. And this morning I'm beginning a series that will continue in the evenings on the first letter of the Apostle Peter. Whenever we come to study a book of the Bible, whether personally or in a group or as here in church, we always ought to ask the question, why are we doing this? Um, The books that we study, the choice doesn't fall out of the sky. It doesn't arrive at the manse in a sealed envelope from heaven. And so, it's appropriate that as we think about studying another book of the Scriptures, we ask ourselves, why do we do this? Why this particular book? There is a stock answer to any book, of course. Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which have already been quoted in the service today, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for us, profitable for us, for teaching us, reproving us, transforming us, and for building us up, strengthening us, enabling us to serve Jesus Christ. That principle gives us a choice of 66 books. So, why this relatively short five-chapter letter called First Peter. And there are two reasons, I think, why at this particular time a study of First Peter is helpful to us. The first is the context into which it was written. Peter is writing now that the Christian church has been established for a generation somehow or another Nobody is very sure it has reached into Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That is what today we would call 
Turkey. The gospel has not only expanded from Jerusalem to Samaria and then round the immediate part of the Mediterranean basin, especially on the north, but it's extended far north. And it is just possible when Peter is writing this letter that there were more native evangelical Christians in what we call Turkey than there are today. And he's writing to them for a very special reason. Until relatively recently, from Peter's point of view, until relatively recently, Christians have by and large gone unscathed by the Roman authorities. Most of the opposition to the Christian faith that you read about in the Acts of the Apostles comes from where? It comes from the synagogues in the, in the cities where Paul and the other apostles are preaching the gospel. And by and large, from the point of view of the Roman authorities, Christianity has been viewed simply as another sect, denomination, you might say, among the Jews. We're all familiar with the sect known as the Pharisees in the Gospels and the sect known as the Sadducees. Probably most of us now know there were other sects, the the people associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes. They were yet another sect of the Jewish faith. And for a couple of decades at least, the Christian faith was umbrellaed by the Jewish faith. The Roman authorities regarded Judaism as what they called a religio licita, a licit in distinction from illicit, a legal in distinction from illegal religion. And so Judaism was tolerated. Not only was it tolerated, but as we find in the Gospels, there were many people who were not only fascinated by it, but drawn to it because Roman religion with its many gods and its profound formalism about those gods had begun inwardly, spiritually, to decay. But now it's becoming clear, partly because of the persecution that the church is experiencing in varying cities in the Roman Empire, the hostilities that were being aroused to Jesus and the people who were called Christians. Peter's writing at a time when the Christian faith is no longer a religio licita, and it is fast becoming an object of opposition from the Roman Empire. Peter himself, as Jesus prophesied, the Apostle Paul, will soon die, not as, for example, the Apostle James did in Jerusalem, or Stephen the martyr did in Jerusalem at the hands of their own people, but now at the hands of the Roman Empire and under the authority of the Roman Emperor. And for one reason, and it's this reason, I think, that makes First Peter 
unusually applicable to our times, unusually relevant in our situation. The reason they would be persecuted was not just because they loved Jesus. In a sense, it wasn't just because, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, they reverenced the Lord Jesus in their hearts. In a sense, it wasn't even just that they called Jesus Lord, because you remember how Paul says in our world, there are Lord's many and God's many. It was that these Christians insisted that Jesus was the only Lord. It was that these Christians insisted that Jesus was the only Savior. You remember how early on in the Acts of the Apostles, it's the same Simon Peter who boldly said in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And of course, that meant for these early Christians, there were three words, actually only two words in the language they used, that would never come out of their mouths. And those words were, Caesar is Lord. And what really drew the ire of the Roman Empire onto these early Christians was that for, first of all, their insistence on Jesus Christ as the only Lord. Had they said, Jesus Christ is my Lord, and Caesar is also my Lord, and uh, if you have another Lord, that's fine, then they would never have drawn to themselves the kind of hostility that they did. It was because of their absolute insistence on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, and then something that always goes hand in hand with that, their desire to put that into practice in every arena of their lives. And it's precisely there, of course, that the rubber hits the road, isn't it? It's precisely here that it's so relatively easy to make the transfer from 1 Peter to 21st century United Kingdom, Western world, Scotland. It isn't quite so bad to say, Jesus is my Lord. But to believe and to say that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we may be saved is to be guilty of an intolerance, an attitude that others regard as hostile to the pluralism of our society despite the fact that people will still tell us that they love the teaching of Jesus, who, unless my memory is fading faster than I think it is, once said, I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so, it's written into the Christian gospel, there is no other way of salvation Just imagine for a moment someone who believes otherwise appearing before the judgment seat of God 
and saying, well, I knew that the New Testament said that, but actually I've found another way of salvation. What is the Father going to say to such a person? I think he's going to say something like this. You mean that in the Garden of Gethsemane, my son said to me, Father, if it's possible, find another way to save them. And I said to him, my son, there is no other way to save them. And you think you have found another way? So the exclusivity of the gospel, the the importance of proclaiming Jesus Christ because He is the only Savior. He is the only way of salvation. He is the only way the Father has provided so that we may be reconciled to Him. Is of the very essence of the Christian faith. And to deny it is tantamount to saying to the Father, I don't care a rap if you said to your son in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is no other way to be reconciled and I will find my own way of reconciliation. And you remember how C.S. Lewis says somewhere that the most solemn words in all the world will be the words that God will speak to such. Your will be done. Depart from me. I never knew you. And of course, there's another element to this, isn't it? And the other element is that these Christians wanted to practice what they believe. Uh, Remember last year when uh, our Prime Minister, still our Prime Minister, made some kind of generalized comment about Christianity and our nation and how all hell was let loose? It ever struck you as being uh, a very significant thing that if any of our politicians profess Christian faith and say that the Christian faith is the guiding light of how they act in the political sphere, never mind in the personal sphere, it's almost as though they are immediately disqualified from holding public office in any shape or form. If you are an atheist, it can influence you. If you are a secularist, it can influence you. If you're a nothingist, it can influence you. If you're confused, it can influence you. But the one thing that must not influence you, the one thing you must not practice, is the implications of your loyalty to and your discipleship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're finding that in all kinds of uh, elements of our lives that actually creep into uh, our own experience. There have been very prominent court cases, haven't there? Uh, the, the one thing, apparently, that is no longer licita allowed is that what you believe about Jesus Christ should either come out of your mouth in the eight hours of your employment each day, or 12 hours for some of you, or influence you in the political sphere, 
is somebody who openly says to the British public, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and every dimension of my life is bound to be influenced by that. Sometimes, uh, and I'm not totally natively a pessimist except about myself, sometimes you think it would be easier for a Joseph to be prime minister in an Egypt or a Daniel to rise to a position of influence under a king, Nebuchadnezzar, and for this to be easily true of a Christian in the society in which we live. Now, there are two ways in which we can respond to that, my friends, aren't there? One is by going into a kind of puddle, glum, doom and gloom, hide your head in the sand scenario. It's awful. Everything is finished. Isn't the world dreadful? I hate living in the United Kingdom. I'm going to move to maybe the Isle of Fula might do, or the Fair Isles, or, or somewhere like that. They're lovely places, actually. But, you know, there's another way of looking at it, and it is the way we ought to look at it. This is a wee bit more like living in the New Testament than we Christians in the United Kingdom have experienced for many, many years. The New Testament, in a sense, is here to come alive to us in this context. And one of the things that obviously is a burden in this letter is this profound lesson. There is no place in the world, no situation in life, no political realm, no social context in which it is not possible to be absolutely faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, be salt of the earth, light of the world, and draw others to faith in Him. And if we doubted it, and this is the great thing about our, we, we always need to remind ourselves there are more Christians in the world today than there have ever been. It's just possible there are more Christians in the world today than there have been some total throughout all history. Yes, God may be moving the center of operations to the, to the south and to the east. But, but even as we look in the world, we have every reason to be upbeat about the triumph of the gospel. But we've also every reason to thank God for a book like First Peter, because it speaks exactly into the kind of situation many of our fellow Christians in the south and in the east have faced and are facing and have shone in that context. So let us not be depressed. And there's another reason for studying this, and I can give it to you in a, a sentence or two or three. It's this. And if you know the New Testament, I can give it to you in a sentence. It was written by, of all people, Simon Peter. It was written I don't know how cowardly Judas Iscariot was, but barring Judas Iscariot, it was written by the apostle who showed more consistent cowardice during Jesus' ministry than any of the others. 
And what does that say to us? It says to us that the gospel is able to take us who, for all our bombast, may actually natively be fierties. That's what Jesus said to Peter, wasn't it? Peter, you're a fierty. We who are who dread the idea of even embarrassment in speaking about Jesus in a social situation. And the 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 under-the-surface message, the subliminal message is this, that Jesus is saying, dear and gentle reader, if I can do this with Simon Peter, then I can fill you too with the Holy Spirit and do it with you. So, those are reasons for studying First Peter. This is not, you would know, the whole sermon, but today it is. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the different ways in which its relevance and power come to us. And thank You, too, that in all the variety of books there are in the Bible, there always seem to be some books that speak right to the situation in which we find ourselves today. And we pray as we, as we think about the situation into which this letter was written, and as we think too about the marvelous way in which you strengthened the man, the, the cowardly man who wrote it. We thank you for the hope this gives us, and we pray you would make us strong and brave to serve our Lord Jesus Christ in our own time and in our own land, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.